Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. This week, we're going to do what I call the Board of Directors Lightning Round. These are six fairly common questions that the person responsible for compliance may often get from a board of directors, particularly as you're trying to build a program and reinitiate or initiate contact with the board on compliance issues. One of the key questions that often comes from directors when the compliance office is first sort of initiating or reinitiating regular discussions is, we're not a large organization. We're kind of a bit player. Why do we care about investing in compliance and ethics? Will the government even care about us since we're very small or we're private? Well, that's a good question. And there are some good, very specific answers to that. The first is, just very broadly speaking, smaller organizations are the ones that get the big hammer. If you look at the U.S. Sentencing Commission data on organizations that are actually sentenced in federal court, small organizations take convictions overwhelmingly compared to large organizations. 94% of organizations just a few years ago, for example, that were convicted of a felony in federal court in the United States had less than 500 employees, and 70% had less than 50. It's small organizations, probably not surprisingly, that don't have compliance programs in place and oftentimes take the big hit. Why is that important? Well, smaller organizations can't weather the costs, the reputational concerns, and associated disasters that come with a big case, a big felony conviction. Large organizations have more resources, and they're just going to be able to weather that storm a lot better than a small or medium-sized organization. Second question that comes off fairly frequently is, why are you talking about sentencing guidelines and sentencing guideline standards? I think the important way or a simple way to answer that question to directors that are asking why you're talking about the hallmarks of the sentencing guidelines is to say, look, it's not me that's talking about it. It's what the local U.S. attorney looks at when they're making the call on charging. It's what the SEC and other agencies consider as their framework for effective compliance programs. It's echoed in standards from the FAR, the Federal Acquisition Regulations, to international standards, the UK Bribery Act, the OECD Good Guidance. They all reference back to these same standards in the framework that you find in the sentencing guidelines. So it's important to say, if somebody says, why are you talking about sentencing guidelines? I'm not the one talking about it. It's the people that we need to be concerned about that are talking about it. The guidelines also are important to promote because they have a flexible framework for organizations of all sizes and scopes. And I think that's important to point out to directors as well that are kind of questioning why this standard is important. You can point out that it's been around now 25 years, that it's proven, and that the expectations for complying with those standards are really well developed. A third question is, we've had this hotline for years now and we never get any calls. Doesn't that mean that we're doing fine? We have a whole other podcast on the notion of why doesn't anybody call me that I encourage you to take a listen to. But when you get this question from directors, I think there are a couple salient points that you can make about a hotline that may not be as well utilized. It could mean that no one knows about the hotline or they're scared to report. 
or they feel that it won't matter because they have a jaundiced view of organizational justice. There are lots of reasons why the hotline may not be ringing. And it's important also to point out in this context to the directors that surveys consistently show that 90% or more of employees prefer to report to their managers, supervisors, or HR. The hotline is pretty consistently in the single or low double digits as far as a preference for reporting. So you don't necessarily expect to see the majority volume of reports or questions or concerns coming in on a hotline. You expect to see those coming up through the chain of command. Another common question you might get in this scenario from the board is, everyone knows we're an ethical company. We do the right thing. Our CEO talks about it all the time. We talk about it all the time. What's the deal? Well, while the organization at the top, the tone from the top that we often talk about, may be very consistent, getting the message to the grassroots is deceptively difficult in some situations, and employee perception of the company culture and our commitment to that culture is actually as important as what we say and do at the top. I think that's an important thing to impart to them, that while they are hearing the positive messages coming from the executives of the organization, and certainly in many cases, the board itself is involved in those positive messages, that's not the whole story. Perception of company culture is often local. So that means what's now often called tone from the middle is important as tone from the top. I think compliance officers need to be prepared to introduce this notion that tone from the top is not the end of communication. A fifth question that frequently comes up in this context from the board is, shouldn't we focus the limited resources we have on anti-corruption or pick a topic, whatever the hot issue seems to be, data security, data privacy, shouldn't we be focusing on that? I think what you need to do, depending on the circumstances and whether you're trying to get resources for that particular issue, is to take a step back and say, look, what regulators are focused on is important, but risks change and we need to have a program that is robust and focuses on reporting, asking questions, taking responsibility, creating a culture, all of the important components that you know you need for your program. Try to discourage this uh, laser focus on only one issue. Assessing individual risk topics and the resources that should be brought to bear for those particular topics individually, but the program as a whole, is really the core of having a successful program. We've heard now for the last few years from the department and other regulators that they want to see a risk based program. So you need to concentrate on your risks. And your risks may be that hot button issue, but they may be something else. So it's important to allow the directors to express their concern about those issues and certainly discuss those issues and how they impact your organization. But don't let those individual risk topics that are the hot issue du jour derail having an effective risk-based program that addresses the issues that you have in your organization. Our last question in the lightning round today is a very common one. Because directors, if nothing else, are very practical. How do we know that the company's money is going to be well spent on compliance? There's a simple answer. Compliance and ethics is not a black box. There are metrics that can be used to gauge the performance of your program. You can benchmark to your peers to ensure best practices. You can conduct internal surveys and reviews and assessments. In fact, under the guidelines, you should have a periodic assessment of your program. There are ways 
to empirically review and assess the performance of your program. It is not a black box. Well, I hope this was helpful. Again, it was the lightning round. It was pretty quick. But these are some common questions, and there are certainly others, that board members often will ask a compliance officer. So again, if you're reestablishing that relationship or establishing that relationship, be prepared to answer some of these really basic questions, to be able to talk about the importance of the sentencing guideline standards and the importance of tone from the middle and measuring and assessing your program to ensure the appropriate use of limited resources. These are all things that are going to come up. If you have a question you want answered on the podcast, be sure to submit it on compliancebeat.com. Now here's the upshot. The upshot this week is if you have new directors that you're communicating with or you're establishing or reestablishing your role with the board of directors of your organization, be prepared to answer some basic questions about what a compliance program is, what the standards are, And also let them know what the expectations are for the oversight of the program from the board of directors and what they should expect from you. Today, we have three questions with Kathleen Edmond. Kathleen has spent the majority of her legal career in corporate ethics and compliance. As chief ethics officer for Best Buy, for decades, she built and subsequently led the company's ethics office. Ms. Edmond is probably best known for her leading edge communication initiatives in creating a connected ethical culture within the organization that supported business strategy vendor integrity, and customer engagement. She's won national awards for innovative and exemplary leadership in the field, and her original use of social media, including her blog, in furthering a transparent ethical business operation is groundbreaking. Prior to practicing law, she earned a master's of business administration with a concentration in business ethics from the University of St. Thomas, a master's in social work from the University of Minnesota. Over the course of her career, she has worked with a wide range of clients representing industries ranging from retail, healthcare, professional sports, and insurance to nonprofit public institutions. Welcome, Kathleen. Hey, good morning to you. Can you talk about your career journey? How did you end up in your current role? So it's not a path that anyone could follow because it was completely unplanned. My, uh, as you noted earlier in that introduction, my, my first master's degree is actually in social work, and I worked in child protection for about a decade. After that, I went back to school, got my MBA, and it was interested in that time. There was the defense industry initiative, so I got my MBA with a concentration in business ethics, following my kind of passion as I learned about this, following some passion, and then went back to school, got my law degree, so that was like a little later in life, and went into Best Buy actually as a contract employment lawyer. So early 2000s, I'm contract employment lawyer, and then Sarbanes hit. So as the general counsel at the time was a great, he was a great mentor, he was a great, he's just a great person. But the situation was such that he needed help writing a code, working on an annual conflicts review. I just kept raising my hand and said, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. So from thence, kind of grew the position. They didn't never had one before, and it just shaped and formed in cooperation with the general counsel, the head of audit, and some other key leadership folks in between. So again, probably not a path that anyone's going to replicate, but at the time, that's what it did. And and I think if there was a theme through there, it was following my interest, being curious about things, and kind of not being afraid to take chances and, you know, shutting your eyes and, and jumping in and, and then learning to swim when you're in there. 
Yeah, if you keep raising your hand, you don't know what uh, you're going to be asked to do, but uh, it can lead, no. <laughs> to, lead to interesting paths. If you could go back in time and tell your younger self one thing before you became the chief ethics, ethics officer at Best Buy, what would that one thing be? I would tell myself to remember that it's not about me. And, and I mean that in a couple of ways. It's not about me. It's not my opinion that matters. It's how does this fit within the values of the corporation? And it's also not about me when people hate to see you coming, when they, when they you know, when things happen and, and you are in awkward, uncomfortable, crosswise situations that don't, don't turn out well for others. It's not about me. So it's important not to be thick skinned, I think, but to be able to step aside and kind of observe without, without being in the middle of Oftentimes you're dealing with people that are in the midst of crisis or there's a crisis going on in the organization. So I guess you have to keep that in mind. You do. And, and it's not like, like you're always dealing with people on their best day or their best self. At one point, what I learned was I, I had to assume good intent. And the world looked differently if I assumed good intent on, on the part of the other person. And, and how would I judge it if I, if I assumed the good intent and a mistake? And you know, so it made, uh, I think it made for, the, the, it's a whole matter of respect and, again, getting outside yourself. It's not about you here. You're not, you're not the one on the hot seat. So let's just work the problem. Yeah. And then lastly, if you could peer into your compliance and ethics crystal ball, what one or two trends do you think are going to be important over the next few years? I think the first one is well underway, and it's certainly enterprise risk management and the the collaboration and alignment of compliance, ERM, quality in the healthcare settings, internal audit. It'll be interesting. I think that it's falling out differently in different industries, but there are so many synergies that it would be a shame to miss. So. Certainly, that collaboration, probably with ERM being a key focal point. And then the other thing that I, and I think we all worry about, is kind of the, can we resist reverting to check-the-box compliance? Because it's so often we want numbers, we want metrics, we want to be able to prove effectiveness, and we end up measuring the wrong things, like... For a while, it was how many calls come into the hotline. We all know that is pretty much a meaningless number because, A, you don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing if you got a lot of numbers, and does that really talk about effectiveness, et cetera. So can we continue to balance values, which are much harder to quantify, and compliance, which is the bedrock of you know just running a good ethical business? How, how do we make sure that we have the right balance between those two I don't want to call them disciplines, but they're but they are different different ways to approach a problem. Sure. Well, Kathleen, I can't thank you enough for answering our three questions today. No, and thanks, and hello to everyone, and and uh, have a great fall. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Morehead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moreheadconsulting.com.